Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. What does it mean to prosper? What does it mean to prosper according to the Bible? Well, in today's message, we have a special speaker, our youth pastor, Dustin Smith, who takes us through 3 John. Let's listen. This has been such a blessing the past several months as two churches have come together. And I'll even confess, uh, it's been an amazing time, but I probably came into this with great suspicion. As my engagement to my fiance ended, that left a bitter taste in my mouth as this image of marriage of two churches came in. I came in with great suspicion, but I can't say anything more than this has actually been a blessing and a healing in my life. As I've been able to actually get surrounded by godly men and women in this community. Like I got uh, coffee with Dean Duval last week and Gary Rodmacher last week and other godly men that our academics too have like PhDs and THMs. They're like, hey man, you're going to seminary. How can we get behind you? I'm like, I never thought I'd have that in my whole life. And it's just been so sweet, this whole experience as a young man. So thank you guys for being a part of it. So if you stand with me for this morning's scripture reading. And before we read 3 John, which I'm so excited about, guys, we're actually going to... Um, contemplate something that Francis Chan, who's one of my favorite pastors and theologians, he says something so profound in our prayer lives. He says, if we just took 30 seconds to think about who it is that we're praying to and that we're interacting with, whose word we're reading, it would radically transform the way that we interact with the God of the universe. So if you bow your heads or just get into a position of prayer, uh, I just want to take a couple seconds of silence just to think who it is that we're praying to. If you don't know who it is we're praying to, lucky for you is we actually get to talk about that today. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would humble us, that you would help us understand. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring about what none of us can manufacture. We ask that you would bestow to us the glories and the wonders and the truths that are within your word that we cannot understand without you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, Third John says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Will you also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true? I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. You may take a seat. 
It's the word of the Lord. And before we dig into third John, I want to pose each of us a question. And it's the, I strongly believe and would argue, is the question, is the key question of the whole New Testament, if not the entirety of all the Bible. And it's a question that Jesus poses to the, his disciples in Matthew uh, 16, 15. He asked the simple question, who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Because the gospel is what they're trying to do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're trying to answer the question of who is this man that claims to be God? Who is this man that works miracles, who sits and eats with lepers and the sick and Pharisees and or the, sorry, the sinners and the tax collectors and everybody that was the socially outcast? Who is this man that is radically transforming the lives of those that he is around? Because it's how we answer this question which will inform the three tests that we've talked about, the doctrinal test. It informs how we and what we believe. It informs our relationships, the relational test. It informs our morality, the moral test. How we answer Jesus's question of who we believe he is answers every aspect of our lives. It informs it. And I remember doing street evangelism when I first started becoming kind of like a pastor, shepherd, however we want to put it. I was doing street evangelism as the pastor in residency at Vast Church. And I would go out with the youth and we would just ask this simple question to people. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? And people would say, well, he was a good teacher. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Jesus didn't claim to be a good teacher. He claimed to be Yahweh incarnate. He claimed to be the God of the universe. So how we answer his question matters. But I wanna get a little bit more specific. Now we're thinking about who Jesus is. I wanna think about what Jesus is thinking for us. And this has to do with third John. The question is, does Jesus want us, the church, not just you personally, us, the church, does he want us to prosper? In this idea of prosperity, I want to clarify, we see guys like Joel Osteen and this materialistic prosperity gospel come out. Like if you give the church $100, you're going to get $200 back. I don't think that's what the Bible is necessarily getting about when we read and talk about this idea of prosperity within our New Testament. But I'd say, and I'd argue, and we're going to go back to this in 3 John, that prosperity according to 3 John is sacrificing what you have, what the body has is sacrificing even to others that are in need having what you have, sacrificing it on the basis of truth within Jesus Christ, which is seeking the benefits of others, is not once asking, how can I leverage this person that I may gain? Rather, it's asking, what can I give up that they may have for their benefit? And I wanna show a picture of my baby nephew who's two months old, just the most adorable kid, Lincoln. Oh my gosh, who loves babies? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh, this kid's adorable. He's not here today because he's really upset. He's not able to eat from a bottle quite yet, unfortunately. Uh, He's a smith, so he's like super stubborn already. Um, But I remember holding Lincoln for the first time um, about two weeks after he was born because I had RSV, didn't want to give it to him, and I was holding him. Who's ever held a baby before? It is absolutely terrifying. Oh my gosh. I went to go hold him and I wasn't supporting his neck and it flopped back and I freaked out uh, because I didn't know that, you know, their necks aren't strong enough. I was just like, do some crunches or something with your neck, kid. What are you doing? Come on, you're two weeks old. You should get this by now. But as I was holding him and looking into his big old blue eyes uh, and he wasn't smiling, he just kind of looked like a potato, but he's just sitting there. But I I didn't want anything more then what's best for this kid? I want this kid to prosper is what I'm thinking. 
like I'm a wrestling coach and one of the biggest uh, pleasures that I have in my life is when my wrestlers start to beat me at wrestling by their senior year. That's the goal. Same with Lincoln. Eventually, I'm prophesying right now in the name of Jesus, he will be a wrestler. Uh, <laughs> eventually, when he's in high school, I want him to be beating me up. I want to be uh, having him give me all the dings and marks that are on my body that these wrestlers are giving me now. I want him to supersede my wrestling career and go past what I ever thought I could be. I want what's best for him. I want him to prosper, sacrifice my time, my energy, my commitment so that he may prosper. But I want to also tell another side of this uh, coin, this story from one of my favorite uh, New Testament authors. Uh, His name's Jonathan Martin. He's an elder here. He wrote a book, The King Saul Syndrome. And in this book, he talks about a karate teacher who has a student and the student comes up to him and says, you know, teacher, I'm gonna be better than you one day. And his karate instructor is kind of confused. He's like, well, no, you're not. And the kid's even more confused. He's like, How? I'm starting earlier than you. I'm already learning faster than you. And the teacher said, well, I'm just not gonna teach you everything that I know. <laughs> pretty smart, right? If you wanna have an advantage, just don't teach the kids everything that you know. It's pretty dang easy, right? But this kid, he didn't get better because the karate teacher didn't teach him everything that he knew. And as he became a teacher and taught even younger kids, he took on that same mindset. So what do you think happened to the sport of karate? Went downhill. And we all have to wrestle with that. I will eventually come to that crossroad with my nephew Lincoln. If praying in the name of Jesus, he becomes a wrestler. If I want him to be better than me. I was just at the district championships for our wrestling team. And there were kids who have put in the time and the energy and the sweat and the blood and the tears and sometimes the vomit and have put in the work to become good wrestlers. And they've even beaten me. And some of them didn't get to go to the state finals. And I just held them as they cried. I'm not even in third John, I'm gonna cry. (laughs) They were already They were crying, and that just breaks my heart because C.S. Lewis even says, we have two options in our lives. We can either love and put our heart outside of a dark, cold coffin with the risk of being hurt, or we can retreat to a nice, cold, dark, comfy coffin where we will have a hardened heart eventually, and it will become irredeemable. One or the other, friends, that's the choice that we have. And it's ever since even we see in Genesis chapter one, God says to Adam and Eve, prosper and multiply. He wants his people to prosper. But another prosperity is offered to God's people from the serpent. You can be like God. And the irony is they were already like God, but this different prosperity of autonomy that is take this in your hands. Think what's best for you. Take that fruit, become God, whatever you think that is. And it's throughout redemptive history that we see eventually Jesus Christ is able to fulfill what Adam could not, which leads up to his question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's question is, you're the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the living God. And it's by that answer that John, in his account of Jesus continually in the Gospel of John, in First and Second John, he says, this we know continually, this we know. We know experientially who Jesus Christ is, that he is the living God, and that we can abide in him, who is quite literally the embodiment and fullness of love, truth, and grace. 
And in 1 John, we see even this prosperity, this false prosperity that the serpent offered Adam and Eve come up, that there's many anti-Messiahs, people who are against this living God. There's many of them going out, and John's warning his followers. And then 2 John, as Ryan uh, last week was talking about, it gets a little bit more specific. There's these false missionaries. Hey, don't accept these guys. They're going out for a false truth, a false gospel. And then 3 John gets pretty dang specific, pinpoint accuracy. There's this guy, Diotrephes, and he is bad news. So John, writing 3 John to Gaius, probably in a sweet old age, a man who's experienced relational harm most of his life and heartbreak as people have turned away from him, like Diotrephes that we'll read. A man who is in leadership in a church of some sort and has probably been there for a hot minute, but has turned away from the gospel for something else, for himself, really. And John has experienced relational harm and heartbreak his entire life. Yet we still see this sweetness and this tenderness to him as he's writing to Gaius. And maybe there's some of us here this morning who have experienced deep relational pain. Whether you have been the person caught and that caused that relational pain or someone has caused you that pain. This should give us hope that we, even in our old age or have received deep relational wounds and pain, can still be tender and sweet. And we read in verse one, it says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Did you guys catch that? I have no greater joy, that sweetness, that tenderness. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking, quite literally walking, doing in the truth. Because to know the truth but not do the truth is to what? Not know the truth. To know and do is to know. And he mentions this idea of love and truth, this paradigm of love and truth that goes together five or six times. So he's trying to make a point that they go hand in hand. It's this doctrinal test, this relational test, this moral test in how we live. Gaius passes all of them because he's walking in truth and love. But now we even see different gospels come up like the progressive Christianity that's coming and going. And it says uh, guys like Pete Enns and Jared Bias, who I listen to often would argue, man, we can't know God We can't know the truth. It's not objective. We can't know it. Oh, but we can know that God is love, which ultimately argues, friends, that, well, truth and whatever prospering is, is what I think is best. It's almost like two different roads that we can have that love and truth are completely different. You either got to have love or you have to have truth. I want to read a quote from Tim Keller that Ryan alluded to this last week says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment or love to us. They go hand in hand. And the elder wants nothing more 
than Gaius and his children to prosper in the truth, to be rooted in truth and love. It's as if when I'm holding my baby nephew Lincoln and looking at him thinking, and maybe some of you grandparents and parents or uncles or aunties or friends who have friends who have kids, I want nothing more than this kid to prosper in life. I want what's best for him. And we see the embodiment of this prosperity starting in verse five, it says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Unfortunately, I'm not speaking on missions. This is an amazing thing of why we should support missionaries, which you guys did when uh, Faith Seeds came, and that was absolutely amazing. In this embodiment of prosperity, I mean, I want to read a quote from Matt Chandler that really just hits it on the head, especially with hospitality. It says, when we talk about what it means to be courageous and faithful in an age of unbelief, a post-Christian world, we have to talk about the Great Commission, go out and make disciples. That is our mission And though it's always been true, I think it's more true than ever to say that evangelism is going to look like hospitality. And specifically here in 3 John is supporting the brothers and sisters of the faith, sacrificing what we have that they may have. It's a body, as Paul would say, that builds itself up. Again, prosperity according to 3 John, sacrificing what you have, thinking about what you have on the basis of the truth of Christ Jesus. That's how truth is embodied, is in love, which is seeking the benefits of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not once having the desire of myself at the expense of another. It's truly looking at somebody, the person next to you, your brother and your sister saying, I want what's best for you, even if it costs me. Our time, our energy, our resources, our commitments giving up that they may have. It's the denial of ourselves to embrace the other that is in need. And I'd argue to say we're all in need. But how do you know if you should even give up for them? They go out for the sake of the name, Jesus Christ. They pass the the doctrinal test, the moral test, the relational test. To know and do is to know. So therefore we know what they are doing and we know what they know. It's a continual loop and spiral. Like when I'm looking at Lincoln, asking myself, do I want to give up what I have? Do I truly want what's best for him? For the youth, do I actually want to give up my Monday nights and my Friday mornings and 40 hours of my week for you guys? I really actually need to wrestle with that. Because if we don't, cynicism and doubt will come in. We need to wrestle with it before the day of trouble happens. Before it actually comes in and I actually need to contemplate, oh, do I actually wanna, before Lincoln gets into high school wrestling, right? I need to wrestle with, am I willing to give up what I have that he may have? And this is even an echo, friends, all the way from 1 Samuel we see with Diotrephes in verse eight and nine. It says, I have written something to the church. John wrote something to the church earlier. Don't know what it is. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. 
So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. A selfish man, a man who is in a place of leadership and a servant in the church decided, rather than going out for the sake of the name of Christ, I'm gonna go out for the sake of my own name. I'm gonna put myself first. And this is a stumbling block, friends. And I think uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a German philosopher, puts it really well. And he understands the Christian faith in a remarkable way that I wasn't expecting. And he says, the Christian faith from the beginning is sacrifice, the sacrifice of all freedom, all pride, all self-confidence of spirit is at the same time subjection, self-derision, and self-mutilization. This idea of prosperity, which is counterintuitive to what we have been raised to even think it is in the Western church in America, it's a stumbling block to the world. They don't understand it. Nietzsche is quite right as a German atheist. It is self-mutilization. What may I cut off from my life that they may have without the expectation of what I can even receive? And it's an echo from 1 Samuel 12, this diatrophy is coming up when it says, when Israel shouts, we want a king. Yahweh's like, why do you want a king? We won't be like the other nations. We want a guy. We want somebody to lead us. We want a man, just like everybody else. And Yahweh tells Samuel, okay, let's give them a king because they have rejected me. And this continues into the life the death, the resurrection, and post-ascension of Jesus Christ as the truth and love and grace of Christ is rejected by diatrophies, which means there is no embodiment of love. We have two roads that we can pick, diatrophies shows us. We can either have preeminence, be over people, be selfish, seek my benefit at the expense of other people. I'm gonna reject missionaries that come in that need support. I'm gonna reject my brothers and sisters that need my help because I'm thinking about myself or prosperity. What can I give up that they may have? What can I give up for my grandchildren, my children, my brothers and sisters that come to the Sunday morning gathering, those who are in my life group which are kicking off? What can I give up that they may have? Because friends, it's going to cost us being in relationship with Jesus Christ who is the fullness of love and truth and grace. Because the elder clearly tells us if we aren't for Jesus Christ, we're either for ourselves at the expense of others, we want another name above the name of Christ, or both. We want a guy or gal to come and watch and tell us how to live our lives. Or we want to be that guy or gal who tells other people how to live their lives. Rather than a we of the body of Christ, we have the tendency to become about me in ourselves, radical individualism. What do I think is best for me? Rather than watching the lives and doctrines of ourselves and others closely, we watch the charisma and competency of those on stage and aspire to be them, putting their name above Christ Jesus. Luckily, I don't have either of those, so you guys don't need to worry about that. (laughs) 
Because John adds to the words of Paul when Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. John even adds to this and says, you need to watch your life and doctrine closely, what you believe and how you believe it and how you live your belief. You need to watch your brothers and sisters' lives and doctrines closely. And this spirit of diatrophy, friends, is alive and well, even in the church. I still remember uh, getting kicked out of the middle school dance when I first came to Sisters, like almost 10 years ago. Got kicked out, called some dude, not that great of a name, um, and got kicked out. And I met Kent Bowles. Who knows Kent Bowles? We love Kent Bowles. We love Kent Bowles. The, the Bowles himself, man, they're great. And he ended up inviting me to church because he looked at me and he's like, you need Jesus. He knew I needed Jesus. So I come to Vast Church and everything, I get involved and he connected me to a young man, probably a little bit older than me. And he connected me to him and said, hey, he's gonna take you on as, you know, you're gonna be his disciple. So I start meeting with this guy and he's got a wife who's pregnant or eventually they were pregnant and things were going great. He held me accountable in my purity, in my schooling, in my discipleship, just like what I believe to be a godly man and he disappeared. As a 14, 15 year old, I didn't really think much, but he just disappeared. And come to find out just a couple years after, he actually left his wife and his newborn son for another woman and drugs and alcohol. This man put his name and his desires, not just above the name of Christ, but those who are closest to him, rather than thinking about his wife in his newborn son, he thought about himself and the desires that he had. And I'm not exempt from this either. I remember last year, I wasn't living up to the call that God put on my life as my fiance at the time and I encountered significant struggles. Significant struggles. And I thought, how can I win this situation? How can I do what's best? How can I use these people in this situation that I can get the ideal outcome for myself? Whether I have to control, whether I have to manipulate, I got to do whatever I can to put myself first that I may win and get the ideal situation out of these challenges that we're facing. And many of you were there and it costed me. And many of you have maybe been there. And friends, we know that we can either learn the way that God wants us to live our lives through his word in the illumination that the spirit gives or through experiencing deep pain in which our sin leads us. And I'd suggest that we go to his word. But oftentimes, we learn from our sin and what the Lord hands us over to. And what's so amazing, friends, about this scripture, it's a scripture of hope. Because he even says, those who do evil do not see God. The point of the church is that we may see Jesus. Jesus even says in John 14, if you see me, you see the Father. If you don't see me, you don't see the Father. And what this community ought to do is help people see Jesus McKibben, I remember crying into your chest after our wedding was called off. Ryan, I remember sitting with you for hours, all the elders, Steve, sitting with you guys, these godly men, 
Not once did this church say, how can we exploit Dustin's sin and his mistakes that we can just show how holy and perfect we are? But rather this church said, how can we help and nurture and correct Dustin to maturity into the call that God's put on his life? And what's so awesome, friends, it's not about me but it is for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Not to exploit others for ourselves, not to gain others up and look how great they are because of me, but it's for the sake of the name of Christ Jesus. And that's what this church did. Because even John says to Gaius, I'm gonna bring up what he's doing. I'm gonna bring to remembrance. He doesn't say, I'm gonna cast him out of the church. Oh, I'm gonna punish him. I'm gonna bring up what he's doing. Because he even compares him to Demetrius who has a good report. It's a scripture of hope and love. Look at what Diotrephes is doing. Man, look at this Demetrius guy. He's doing great. He's walking in truth and love. Gaius is the foundation. Karen Jobes, who's one of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars even puts it this way, friends, on how we should function with God's love. She says, love as God defines it, it does not approve of sin. It's not sentimental, but it's not harsh. It doesn't approve of sin. It addresses it. It doesn't approve of it. It's a community that watches the lives and doctrine of those who come closely out of love for the sake of the truth. Because love and truth, friends, it's vigilant. It's accepting nothing outside of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is embodied perfectly by Jesus, friends. One of the earliest church hymns that I just love is in Philippians chapter two. Because outside, when I'm looking at Lincoln, friends, when I'm looking at my nephew and holding him with his head supported, <laughs> when I'm looking at him, Eventually, I will come to that point, do I really want him to surpass me in every way? For us grandparents, for us parents, for us friends who hold babies and kids and our teenagers and our adult children, do we really want them to be better than us? And we will come to that crossroad eventually, even the people next to you, do I really want to sacrifice that they may prosper more than I? Not once thinking of ourselves. But without Jesus Christ, friends, I would argue we can't even contemplate that. Because without Jesus Christ, we don't have a perfect model in which we can even live to follow that life. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. An innocent man, an innocent God who never did a single sin in his life, sinless, without blemish, took the punishment that we so deserved who died a criminal's death on a cross 
who lived the life that no one could, who fulfilled everything that Israel, Adam, everybody could not. He sought our benefit, our prosperity, at the cost of his own life. God died on a cross. But this is the result of his heart for us, that we may prosper. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As he descended, not once expecting to ascend, he actually ascended by God the Father. And this should offend us, friends, as he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father. No one inherits eternal life. No one may prosper in life, eternal life, except through me. And this should offend us, friends, because Jesus is the only way. We cannot, I can't look at Lincoln and say, I want what's best for this kid and I want him to prosper if I don't know Jesus Christ. Because outside of Jesus Christ, friends, we don't have a model to follow. We have ourselves in a corrupt world. But by the grace of God in the fullness of love and truth and grace, we have a model that we can follow where we can look at those next to us, those who we love and say, I want what's best for you even if it's going to cost me without selfishness, seeking the benefit of others, even if it costs us. And as we leave here today, I want to read us a quote from Scotty Smith, and it's a small prayer that I want us to contemplate. He says, In our families, forgive us for the ways we're more bothered by things that annoy us and disappoint us then we're committed to loving and serving those with whom we live. Help us see and grieve the ways like Diotrephes. We want to be coddled and celebrated, served and honored. May our families experience us as foot washers more than resident critics. In our friendships, forgive us and free us, Jesus, when our obsessions to be included and appreciated is more pronounced than our commitment to pray, pursue, and care for our friends. Help us be the kind of friend you are to us, Jesus. At work, help us see and grieve the ways we're more defined by our place in the chart than by who we are in Christ. Among our coworkers, may we emit the aroma of grace and servanthood more than the pungent smell of selfishness and competition. And friends, as we leave here today, we have the opportunity to ask the, the open-ended question, why am I? Why am I a father? Why am I a grandparent? Why am I a mother? Why am I a friend, an uncle, an auntie, a nephew, a niece? Why am I a son or a daughter? Why am I a laborer, a business owner, a worker? Why am I in the roles that God's placed me in? Is it to gain the moral high ground in another person? Is it to get richer at the expense of others? Is it to raise people up that I may get all the glory? Is it to be merely applauded and seen by others? Or why are we here today? It should be that we're here to have a radical encounter with Jesus Christ as we partake in a worshiping, 
community who seeks to go out from here for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And even the youth ministry, we get to do this in March with Project Portland, we call it, where we get to go out and partner with local organizations in Portland, Oregon, who seeks to help those who are rehabilitating from alcoholism and drug addictions and even women fleeing from uh, abusive relationships and people who are homeless. We get to go out and give up our time and our energy and and see what it looks like to pave the way to actually give up what we have that others may have. And some of you here this morning may not be able to go, but there's even ways that you guys can even help these high schoolers as the cost is 130. Maybe some of you want to sponsor a kid or just give to the trip that we're doing this spring break to go out and serve other people and help out our trip. You guys are more than welcome to. I'll be in the back too with handouts. But we get to do that this spring, y'all. It's going to be amazing. You guys get to give up what you have that others may have. That is beautiful. And I want us to be prepared as we're giving and we're serving and we're thinking, do I want what's best for my brothers and sisters and those in my lives? I ask all these questions because I want us to be prepared for that one simple question Jesus asks us. Who do you say that I am? Do we want to be Gaius and Demetrius or do we want to be Diotrephes? And I want to invite those of you as Christ followers to come to the communion table. And I want us to think about that Philippians 2 passage, the death that Christ died, that he calls us to remember. We also ought to remember his resurrection and ascension, the the body that was mutilated and the blood that was shed, friends. Christ has called us to remember the sacrificial death which he had. Philippians chapter two, verse eight says, in being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the shed blood of Christ, cleansing our sins from us. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.